0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, host of the New Books Network, and I'm delighted that you're joining me today to discuss Jonathan Schneer's new book, The Lockhart Plot, Love, Betrayal, Assassination, and Counter-Revolution in Lenin's Russia. Jonathan, thank you so much uh, for being on the show.
1: My pleasure. Delighted to be with you.
0: So this book just came out from OUP Oxford University Press and it's a, kind of a, a rip-roaring tale of a, an important part of the Russian revolutionary scene that a lot of students uh, on the academic side will may have missed which is the the degree of uh, western intervention in the very early stages of the the Russian Revolution in 1917 1918 1918 in particular and how things might have gone in uh, a lot of different directions. Can you, how, how did you come upon this topic? Uh,
1: right. Well, thanks for the question. Um, I, I, it's a long story how I, how I came upon this subject. And I'll, I'll try to say it fairly quickly. Um, I go to, I'm a British historian, not a Russian historian. I go all the time to Britain to do research for one book or another that I'm working on. And I wound up staying through wonderful circumstances um, with an old woman whose name was Tanya Alexander. Um, and Tanya, it turned out, was the daughter of the woman who was Bruce Lockhart's lover, Mura von Benkendorf. Tanya was uh, born in 1915. So as I say, a good deal older than I, um, but she lived to a degree in her mother's shadow. And although her mother had died in 1974 and I didn't start staying with Tanya until uh, the late 1980s, um, we talked about her mother often, Uh, not least, by the way, since her mother had an extraordinary life after the Lockhart plot um, and was the lover, for example, of H.G. Wells. And many books were being written about H.G. Wells and therefore about Tanya's mother. And Tanya was always angry about the way her mother was portrayed. And so we talked about this sort of thing quite often. Um, and that's how I learned about the Lockhart plot. I didn't begin writing the book until many years later, um, but I have known about it for a good 10, 15 years before the idea to actually write a book about it came into my head.
0: And uh, Tanya, if I'm not mistaken, is the daughter of uh, Mora Benkendorf with her Estonian uh, or, uh, husband, from whom she was on. We're no. getting detailed in the no. weeds.
1: No, 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 no. Tanya was the daughter of John von Benkendorf. She was born in 1915. Uh, John von Benkendorf married Mura um, uh, at the maybe early in the 1900s, um, and they had these. Uh, that's a little wrong. Married, married probably around 1910 and had two children just uh, as World War I was beginning. He had been a, an, um, a diplomat in, for the Russians in Germany and went back, and he was an aide-de-camp to the Tsar. And Tanya was born, as I say, in 1915. Her father, John von Bekendorf, was murdered, actually, in 1919. Um, and Tanya's mother, Mura, married someone else, the Baron Budberg. That's another story.
0: But the uh, Tanya and or that is uh, Mora von Benkendorf, kind of, if I recall correctly from the book, split with her her husband and her two small children. They went to their estate in in the Baltics, and she stayed in in Petrograd in Moscow and got involved in the Lockhart plot. While Tanya was a very small child and was out of the picture, at least at that time, is that that I believe uh, is correct.
1: Yes, that's absolutely
0: right. Yes. So more gets involved in this plot. Let's let's get to the plot. So the just for the general listener, 1917 is a tumultuous year. The czar abdicates early in the year. There's something called a provisional government. Several provisional governments. There is a war raging on the Western Front with Germany. Russia is uh, nominally allied with France and England in this war. It's very messy. And then you have a revolution, a Bolshevik revolution. That is ideologically, you know, very strident, and yet the power of the Bolsheviks is, is uh, at least initially, very limited. And so there are so many moving parts. And what I think your book does a, a fine job of is highlighting all the moving parts in late 1917, but specifically early uh, 1918, as all of these agents—not and I don't mean spies, but I mean forces of history—are competing with each other, and nobody knows how it's going to end. We know the Bolsheviks ultimately won. The Soviets had a seventy-year run, seventy-five-year run, but it was not at all clear that that was going to be the case in early 1918. And uh, I think that your book does a, a great job of capturing that chaos. You want to describe a little bit of, you know, all the uh, all the players. You need a, you almost need a scorecard at this point to to keep track of everyone.
1: Yes, sure. So as you say, the Bolsheviks took power in October 1917. Um, and they were beset on all sides, um, not merely by the Germans who were still their enemies in World War I, but by counter-revolutionaries who were grouping in southern Russia in the Don region and in the far east and in the northwest. Um, and so they were hanging by a thread. Nevertheless, they were the government with whom other foreign powers had to deal. Um, the other foreign powers didn't like the Bolsheviks at all because of their communist principles. Um, nevertheless, and they withdrew diplomatic recognition, but they also all realized they had to talk to them. And so at the very beginning of 1918, January 1918, the British sent Robert Hamilton Bruce Lockhart, a 31-year-old Scot, to Russia to make contact with the Bolsheviks and to try to persuade them to stay in the war against Germany. And if they insisted on getting out, uh, then to um, Lockhart's job was to persuade them to make a peace with Germany that did not terribly damage British interests.
0: And from there, when Lockhart arrives, the scene in, in uh, Moscow and Petrograd is just filled with intrigue, only a small portion of which is his. Plus, and one of the kind of benefits of your book is that Lockhart also had a personality, had a life, had a fondness for a companionship. And the documented record shows all of these things the high life, shall we say, and private life of these individuals, foreign agents, or sometimes diplomats uh, assigned to the embassies. Uh, and as they're living through what we would consider historical times. But it turns out they had personal lives during the historical times. And Lockhart was no exception. matter of fact, he was pretty good at it, as far as we can tell.
1: Yeah, Lockhart was a rogue. Lockhart was married. Um, and he, he had been the um, consul um, in Moscow for Britain from 1912 to 1917. First a junior and then actually the, the senior consul. And in fact, he engaged in an extramarital affair. And they sent him home as, uh, because of that. Um, nevertheless, they sent him back to Russia because he knew uh, the scene very, very well. His reports in the uh, period when he had been the consul were brilliant reports. I've read the reports. They're fantastic. Um, but yes, he was a rogue. He had an eye for women. That one affair that he was sent home for probably was not the only affair he engaged in. And he had no sooner gotten to Russia, back to um, Petrograd, as it was then called, than he met Mora von Benkendorf, um, and within a few weeks, uh, they were first corresponding, and then they were telephoning, and then they were seeing each other, and then they were engaged in a passionate affair.
0: Which to some extent, again, we're stepping to the end where your uh, acquaintance with Tanya Alexander, but... To some extent that relationship off and on lasts for fifty years, both sides of the border, multiple uh, dramatic scenes in history, wars and so forth uh they don't remain that close relationship, but they they survive all of this and uh, get to the 1970s 1960s and 1970s both in in England if i'm not mistaken yeah
1: part part of the the, the book is it it's it's a it's a, a rip roaring story about an incredible um attempt to overthrow the Bolsheviks. But the, um, the substrata, the, 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 the backdrop, is this affair that these two engage in. Um, for Mura, it was the love of her life, although she went on to lead the most extraordinary life, and you may want to ask me about that later. Um, she would have stayed with him. She would have died for him. Uh, and and in fact,
0: she almost he, did at points yes, uh, in, yes, right yes. as the, the plot unraveled, and she is at the hands of the Chika.
1: That's exactly right. Yes. And he, he I, I do believe he deeply loved her, um, but he was an opportunist and he was a rogue. And um, when, uh, when he was first arrested and then sent back to England because the plot had unraveled, um, it was easier for him to let Mura go. And and yet um, she remained in his life for the rest of his life. Um, once she understood that he what he was that he was callous, um, uh, she understood it. She loved him anyway, but she let him go. She had her own life, her own remarkable life with her own affairs, and he had his own. But when she got to England in the 1930s, they resumed their friendship. It was no longer a romantic relationship, but they kept at it until he died.
0: So let's, let's get back to the, to the main story. So there are, you need a map, you need a scorecard, but I'm going to highlight a couple of things that I would ask you to kind of put on the map. The first is the Czech Legion, the Czech group of, of troops that are making their way through Russia from the, from the East. Okay. Uh, Arkhangelsk and Murmansk and Vologda, and why all of these are viewed by the English and French and Americans as opportunities as the Bolshevik Revolution develops, and they're thinking about what to do with it. These end up becoming che- uh, pieces on a chessboard.
1: Yes. Okay. It's complicated, so bear with me. Um, first of all, the three ports, uh, Vladivostok in the Far East and Murmansk and Archangel. Uh, in the Northwest, um in each of those ports, there were war material um, that the Allies wanted to keep, and they were afraid, especially in uh, the Northwest, Murmansk and Archangel, that the Germans would capture and take them and so part of the plan was for the allies um before they even were thinking about overthrowing the Bolsheviks, they nevertheless wanted to occupy those ports to safeguard those materials um of course the russians didn't want them occupying parts of russia um and so that that became a bone of contention um the allies began to think that they couldn't work with the bolsheviks that the bolsheviks would never um uh, restart the war against germany and so um they began to think about overthrowing them um and about occupying those ports and then marching south uh, towards um, both Moscow and Petrograd. Um, you mentioned, I think, Vologda, is that right? So, Vologda, so, yes. Yes. I, I, pardon my, I'm not a Russian historian, I'm a British, so I don't know how to, how to pronounce the Russian words.
0: But that's quite all right.
1: That, it was a, it, that's a, 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 a railway terminus. No, not a terminus, I beg your pardon but a a, um, a central part of the railway uh, connecting, coming from the far, far east Vladivostok along the Trans-Siberian Railway and coming south down from Archangel to Vologna. So it was a very important nodal point. And from there, they could have jumped off and they could have attacked either Petrograd or Moscow. Now, you asked about the Czech Legion. The point was that the Allies didn't have enough soldiers uh, to overthrow the Bolsheviks if, in fact, they really wanted to do it. They needed help. The Czechs had been um, captured um, earlier in the war, yes, earlier in the war, um, but they wanted really to fight against the Austro Hungarian Empire. They wanted to um, separate. A Czechoslovakia from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and so the Bolsheviks at first allowed them to get on the Trans-Siberian Railway and head east. And the idea was they would get to Vladivostok, they would get on ships, and they would sail all the way around the world and get to France, and then they would go and fight the Germans. Um, but the Allies began to think Well, maybe the Czechs could help us uh, to defeat the Bolsheviks. And so the Czechs were on that Trans-Siberian railway, and some were headed for Vladivostok. Some actually began going in the other direction, up toward Archangel, um, and they came into conflict with Bolsheviks, and they would often fight it out with the Bolsheviks, and they were very well armed, very well trained, very well officered. They invariably won. And so the allies thought that the Czechs might be the foreign contingent that would help them to overthrow the Bolsheviks. But in fact, the Czechs didn't do that.
0: Well, the whole plot falls apart, including all of these assumptions. The The English, most of the perspective is from the English. Uh, it looks like you've had access to a lot of their diplomatic cables and so forth there. Their perception, you said you've read Lockhart's reports but still, what I is striking in, in the book is that as uh, uh, perceptive as Lockhart and some of the other British uh, diplomats were, just the chaos of the of 1918, the spring of 19, is overwhelming, and uh, getting the notion of who would do what under what circumstances. Uh, we also have the Latvian rifles who were on the side of the yeah. Bolsheviks, but uh, many people ascribe to them all sorts of motives and got a lot of that wrong. And so it's utter chaos, and you have this shift from uh, the British perspective and Lockhart's initial perspective, hey, let's be, I wouldn't say friends, but allies with the Bolsheviks if we can, to over a relatively short period of time, the Western opinion forms, we have to try to get rid of these people if we can, and and that's the basis of, of the plot and the other efforts. That. Transition occurs. I think it called the spring of two thousand of two thousand, the spring of of uh, nineteen eighteen. Over a period of a couple months, when the British appear to give up hope of the Bolsheviks in any way turning out to be a benign regime to them, is that roughly the correct timeline?
1: Yes, yes. Well, I think really from the outset there were few people in the Foreign Office who thought they could do business with the Bolsheviks. However. Lloyd George was interested. Lloyd George was the prime minister, David Lloyd George, liberal prime minister. He thought it might be possible. And really, he and the foreign secretary, Arthur Balfour, sent Lockhart to sound out the Bolsheviks. But the majority in the Foreign Office uh, were very suspicious of the Bolsheviks from the outset. And what Lockhart figured out over the course of several months was that opinion back in London was swinging decisively against cooperation with the Bolsheviks, and then he swung too, because he was, as I say, an opportunist. He really believed that probably the best thing the British could do was to help the Bolsheviks economically. and thereby entice them to come back into the war against Germany because the Germans were a terrible menace to the Bolshevik regime they were on the west and they were marching probably towards um Petrograd um so if Lockhart had had his way he would have signed deals of co- of economic cooperation with the Bolsheviks but when he realized that the Foreign office back in London didn't want that, then he abandoned that and began doing what he thought the Foreign Office wanted him to do, which was to encompass the overthrow of the Bolsheviks. I was going to say, you mentioned the Latvian Rifle Brigade. When he despaired of the Czechs, because the Czech battalion, in fact, was not interested in helping to overthrow the Bolsheviks, he thought the Latvian Rifle Brigade, which was also a very well Officered, very well-trained, very well-armed division in the Russian army, part of the whole big Russian army, he thought that he could bribe some of their disaffected officers and that they would do what the Czechs had originally been intended to do, help them overthrow the regime. And he thought that because the Germans had occupied Latvia um, and the Latvian Rifle Brigade wanted to expel the Germans, and they thought the Bolsheviks who had signed a peace treaty with the Germans, the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, uh, the Latvian Rifle Brigade thought that that had been a betrayal and a betrayal of the Latvians. So Lockhart worked with them.
0: So the the plot as it begins to emerge in the summer of 1918 involves a small contingent of British forces which are already in the far north under uh, British command Potentially either initially the the Czechs and then uh, the Latvians, as well as a British officer based in Petrograd who was determined to sink the Russian Baltic fleet. white Russian white army officers appear and disappear in the account as potential partners, but that's a bit of a mess as well. Uh, and then the Lockhart involved the Lockhart plot is basically an, an attempted coup. What did, you know, what were the main elements that he was responsible for, as opposed to the British Army officer? Comrie in a British Navy officer, and Comrie in St. Petersburg, who who seems to be mostly focused on uh, sinking the, the the Russian fleet.
1: Right. That that was Captain Cromie. Comry,
0: um, excuse me. Cromie,
1: yes. Um, well, Lockhart and Cromie were in very close touch. Uh, the plot, as it began to develop, was this: that there would, in they knew there was going to be a meeting of top Bolsheviks um, in Moscow on September seven. And the idea was um, for allied troops, mainly British, to march south from Archangel Um, and for the Latvian Rifle Brigade that would probably be sent by the Bolsheviks to stop them to stand aside because Lockhart and Cromie thought they had bribed the Latvians to do that. So coming south would be these troops from Archangel. Then the meeting in Moscow, um, where again, detachments of the Latvian Rifle Brigade would support um, several agents who intended to just sort of march into the hall where the Bolsheviks were meeting and to capture them. They had hand grenades and they had um, guns and they were going to shoot Lenin and Trotsky right away and declare the counter-revolution. They would be supported by these Latvians um, and by other so-called white uh, army detachments that had been uh, in process of formation and which were in underground, as it were, but in Moscow. Simultaneously, there would have been a similar um, coup attempted by Kromi in Petrograd. That, that's the that, that's very bald outline of it.
0: One thing that I think and I noticed when I recall when I was teaching that comes striking to many students is the very, very first part of that, which is the British contingent in uh, Arkhangelsk, uh, just the existence of the British contingent. Again, the British had landed troops in Russia, then what becomes Soviet Russia, as it were, to defend supplies in these ports. But uh, a lot of Western students are unaware that. Western powers had landed a small contingent, a couple hundred, I believe, initially, uh, of troops to defend supplies. But in effect, it's a a minor form of an invasion. And it's not part of the Western standard uh, uh, curriculum to point out that Britain had invaded uh, the Soviet Russia. But, you know, technically it's true. It's worth noting in the Lockhart plot, the British troops there don't play a major role, but it's worth pointing out that they were there on... Soviet territory occupying Arkhangelsk.
1: Yes, absolutely right. Yes. Um, and the Soviets uh, were paranoid at the time, but there was reason for their paranoia. They, these uh, foreign troops were indeed a threat. The fact is that Lockhart, uh, in all his scheming, and he was a very, he was a, a formidable figure, um, but he was up against people who were more formidable than he. And I'm referring here uh, mainly uh, to the head of the Chika whose name was Felix Dzerzhinsky. And Dzerzhinsky penetrated the plot in complicated ways and basically managed it uh, uh, once he had figured out what was going on and destroyed it.
0: Dzerzhinsky ends up being kind of the puppet master here. And at this point, it also begins to read a bit like a John Le, Le Carré because he uses double agents with great facility. And right. again, you kind of need a scorecard. Uh, he has his own crew of Latvians who are, uh, are pretending to be on the side of the disaffected Latvians uh, in order to penetrate uh, Lockhart's plot. and But in fact, they are just heading back to Ljubljanka, the headquarters of the Chika every night and sharing their notes with Dzerzhinsky and his number two, who happens also to be Latvian. So... Um, it's really as much a tale about Derzhinsky. Uh, I mean, Lockhart's obviously, and Lockhart and Moira are the dominant characters, but there are so many interesting characters in this book. But Derzhinsky's near the top of the list in terms of interesting, uh, uh, interesting players in in the novel.
1: I I agree with in, you the novel, in the novel, in the reality, in the <laughs>
0: history. Yeah, I'm yeah. thinking Le, Le Carre. I'm thinking of George Smiley, but the, yes. you know, this is the, the the early Soviet George Smiley is Felix Derzhinsky. Yeah.
1: Yes, he is a spy master. Um, Cherzhinsky is an extraordinary figure. Um, he became a Bolshevik. Well, he became a communist, a Marxist as a schoolboy. Um, and he, a, a, and he came from a, uh, comfortable, um, landowning, uh, family. Uh, he was Lithuanian, by the way. Um, and I think they had a title even. Um, but he, he was a zealot. And he devoted to Marx. It was as if he, he gave up Catholicism for Marxism. He, 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 he left Mary for Marx. And, um, and he devoted his life to the Socialist Revolution. And during the czarist period, uh, he was a conspirator. He was often captured. He was tortured uh, many times. He escaped many times. There was nobody more uh, self-sacrificing than he. Um, and then he was appointed. It was uh, the, the, um, the fox was put in charge of the hen house. He was made the head of the Chaka. And because nobody knew more about conspiracy than Iron Felix Zsuzhinsky, he's an extraordinary figure. Um, and, and almost sympathetic, except that he was willing to drench the land in blood. In order to save the revolution,
0: and his number two comes up almost exactly the same. Yeah, fascinating. Had spent time. Uh, this is Yakov Peters. Had spent time in in England. I believe had an English wife. I met, almost all these characters have multiple wives, uh, or r- wives in one location and partners in others. But his, yes. his, he's uh, number two in the Cheka, working with Dzerzhinsky. His wife is in England at the time, and she's not. Uh, she's not uh, Russian or or Latvian or involved in the revolution at all. Just again, more the chaos of history, uh, you know, the absence of clean lines in history. So, as number two, Peters also uh, almost has sympathetic moments—not sympathetic, but sympathetic moments—and uh, you know, as I said, it spent the, much of the pre-revolutionary period in England, or some of the pre-revolutionary period in England, and uh, ha- had his own history in getting involved with the the Latvian element of the Czechos effort to to undermine this this plot by sending their own latvian agents into the midst of it
1: yes so um i think that, first of all one of the ways that i began to understand um these people someone like yakov peters um these are he was about 31 or 32 these are all young men um and young women as well um and these young bolsheviks find themselves in charge of this enormous country and determined to make socialism work. And I think they started out, many of them, uh, as great idealists. I'm not talking here about Lenin and Stalin, but about people um, who were not as important as they, but who made the revolution work. So people like Yakov Peters, um, even people like Felix Yerzynski, um, go at the beginning of events they i mean Dzerzhinsky says something about how he doesn't want there to be a secret police but you have to have one so that there won't be a secret police in the future um but in order to protect the, their achievements so far they go step by step by inexorable inevitable step uh down the road to bloody hell and inferno to save themselves but what they wind up doing is destroying themselves and destroying the revolution in my opinion
0: and you get moments not so much with uh Derzinski, but with commentaries between or conversations between lockhart and peters towards the end after lockhart has been arrested and he is uh, being interrogated very as it were gently because he's a british consular official at that point and so they can't just take him they could but they chose not to just take him out back and shoot him They just try to interrogate him. Uh, Ultimately, he is exchanged uh, for some conveniently arrested Soviet citizens in England, uh, and uh, so the British are able to uh, get him out. But look, the plot fails. Let's go uh, how, you know, they're, uh, they're setting up the plot. Have everything set up. They think Lockhart and another famous spy, someone that many people may have heard of, Sidney Riley—not his real name, the so-called ace of spies—is also plays uh, more than a cameo role, but a, a, a partner role with with Bruce Lockhart in trying to arrange this. He's already a fairly famous figure because he a very flamboyant individual. What what should we know in regard to Sidney Riley about Sidney Riley in regard to the Lockhart plot?
1: Sidney Riley probably was the model um, of James Bond for Ian Fleming. Um, Although it has also been said that uh, Robert Hamilton, Bruce Lockhart was, but I think most people think it was Sidney Riley. So Sidney Riley uh, was a Russian to begin with. He wasn't British. And you said his real name wasn't Sidney Riley. In fact, it was Shlomo Ben Hirsch Rosenblum. Um, And he got to... England, uh, after various adventures as a young man in Russia. Uh, he probably, um, betrayed various, um, uh, social democratic friends that he had w- as a very young man. Uh, he may have worked for Scotland Yard as an informer. Um, but he wound up, first he married, uh, the, the widow of a doctor whom he may have helped, um, uh, on his way. Uh, to the other, to the other world. Um, in the end, uh, Sidney Riley married four women. He never divorced any of them. In other words, he was a serial bigamist. Um, he made a fortune first by his, first by marrying the first woman, but then, um, he, uh, he, he became an arms dealer, uh, uh, and, and a, a successful one. Um, he worked for one government or another, um, getting secrets. From other governments for them. He didn't have principles with regard to this. He worked for whoever paid him the most. Um, um, he was a collector of Napoleonic memorabilia. Um, but he did, and, and most people say he probably was a sociopath. That is to say, he did not form real connections with people. He used people when they were convenient, he could be very charming. Um, And of course, he was also very dangerous, deadly. Um, But he did have one genuine conviction, and it was anti-Bolshevism. And he volunteered. uh, He had become a British citizen, um, and he volunteered uh, to help. And he was sent back to Russia, where he had been many times before. Um, And he immediately became known to Lockhart. the two of them are, I would say, probably central to the evolution of the plot. Lockhart, of course, is the leader, uh, but Sidney Riley is very important and part of it. Um, and by the way, at the end, when, um, the, British gov- when the plot failed and um, the British government wanted, dis- wanted to disown the whole thing, Sidney Riley quite gallantly uh, in an autobiography, which he didn 't really write, he wrote part of it, but his fourth wife wrote the rest of it for him after he passed away after he was killed by the Bolsheviks, having been lured back to Russia in one thousand nine hundred and twenty five anyway, in that so called autobiography, Sidney Riley took full responsibility for the failed Lockhart plot, but that was a lie, but almost everything Sidney Riley ever said was a lie
0: so the the plot does fail the it, it's a weak plot to begin with. They don't. They don't really have what it takes to pull this off. Uh, but the plot fails with some interesting coincidental factors. There was an assassinate a successful assassination attempt on uh, a uh, Petrograd Czechist right at the wrong time. And then there was Fanny Kaplan's uh, failed assassination attempt on Lenin, even more so. And in, in, in this is uh, in Moscow, also at the wrong time. And that forces the hand of uh, Dzerzhinsky to say. Uh, we're going to roll this up right now, and he he basically goes out and launches a much broader collection effort of of perceived spies and agents or oppositional figures of the regime, but also specifically calls in all his chips in regard to the Lockhart plot and arrest basically arrests everyone that they get their hands on, and, and thereby the plot comes to an end.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, I can I can explain it in a little further detail. Um, the plot was supposed to take the 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 plot was supposed to explode shall we say on September 7 um but then the bolsheviks postponed their meeting till September 14 and that was because they knew about the plot and they were getting all their pieces on the chessboard into the right places uh and the conspirators should have heard warning bells when they learned that the plot had been postponed but they didn't hear them all right um so um then what happened was that i think it's on the on the 31st of august um um as you say a, um the head of the chika in petrograd uh, and his name was yuritsky um was assassinated by a young uh, former cadet army officer a young man and a, a poet named leonid kanegisser um and Zerzhinsky talked to Lenin about this, and Lenin said, they were in Moscow, he he said to Zerzhinsky, go to Petrograd, find out from Kanagisser if he is connected to the plot that we know about, the one that's taking place on September 14. Discover the links, is what Lenin said to uh, Zerzhinsky. So Lenin takes the train, I'm sorry, so Zerzhinsky takes the train to Petrograd, questions Kanagisser, gets nothing from him, And then while he's there, he gets the terrible news that back in Moscow that night, Fanny Kaplan, this um, former socialist revolutionary, um, um, has shot and maybe killed Lenin. Nobody knows if Lenin will live or die. And so he takes the train back to Moscow. And you can imagine him sitting on the train and the train rocketing through the countryside. These two shootings. and Dzerzhinsky concludes he has it wrong. The Lockhart plot is ahead of him. They're about and
0: he needs a- to. He needs to wrap it up now. He needs to start his, his uh, shutting them down now, not wait.
1: That's precisely right. And so they do. They arrest Lockhart and Mura the very next night. Um, and along with everybody else, they launch the first Red Terror, which is a terrible harbinger for what's going to happen later in the Soviet Union. They don't kill as many people this time. Um, but it's a harbinger. It's
0: awful. So I want to step back just one second again for people less familiar with Russian history. Fanny Kaplan, you characterized her as a socialist revolutionary. And so many uh, readers will think, well, whoa, 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 the Bolsheviks are in power. What's the problem? Keep in mind that the Tsarist regime fell to a wide range of anti tsarist forces from modest constitutional democrats, what so-called constitutional democrats, to... Even people who supported perhaps a different uh, autocrat or monarch, all the way th- across the political spectrum to socialists of various types. And remember, pretty much everyone who wasn't <laughs> who wasn't in support of an existing monarchical regime in Europe at that time, uh, or, or religiously uh, oriented government structure, could have been called a socialist. It was a very very broad term and lots and lots of different types all the way over to extreme socialists, anarchists, the Bolsheviks, and then different. uh, the Communist Party was split into the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. So even there, there were divisions. A socialist revolutionary was not a Bolshevik. As a matter of fact, they were at odds with each other, and as is often the case among revolutionaries, yes, they opposed the whites, yes, they opposed the uh, autocratic forces, but they hated each other with an equally hot passion, and uh, so it was not entirely surprising that a socialist revolutionary, so-called SR, might be involved in an assassination attempt of a, uh, of a Bolshevik. There was, yes. a, again, a wide range of these types of individuals.
1: Fanny Kaplan was part of a group that thought that the Bolsheviks and Lenin had betrayed socialism when they signed the peace treaty with the Germans. And they also, of course, believed that you couldn't make a socialist revolution in Russia uh, on the backs of the proletariat. You had to include the peasantry and the socialist revolutionaries uh, were strongest, had their most, most of their followers were from the peasantry.
0: And so you have the, the Red Terror, and even before, when the Bolsheviks take over, they're fighting their own co-revolutionists as much as they're fighting supporters of uh, the Tsar or Russian generals who would have taken over the Russian state. Uh, it's just, again, one of the things about your book Jonathan, that I, I really recommend readers to to appreciate. It's very well written. In addition to having lots of kind of romance in the personal lives, it simply does emphasize the degree to which this turning point in history, when told 75 years after in high schools and colleges and in ac- traditional academic treatises, it's, it's a kind of a linear narrative, even though if there are some zigs and zags. And what your book brings out is at the time, it really was extremely messy. There were lots of uh, back and forth, and you just didn't know how it's going to turn out. And I think it really brings that period of, of confusion for everyone involved out very, very nicely. And so I, I commend you uh, on that. I, I do want to ask you to step back if we can with where we started, which is Tanya Alexander Mora's uh, daughter. I found the post-war history of these characters, those who, who are not uh, die on the scene, Derzhinsky works himself to death in 1926. The Russians, most of them fail in 1937 and 38. They're caught up in the purges. But those that got out, uh, you know, very, very interesting characters. Uh, You mentioned that Riley got out, but then foolishly went back. Lockhart has an interesting history. Mara has a very interesting history afterwards. I just think that that is, uh, is part of the tale, is that they got out of this incredibly, this crucible, and went on to live lives... Um, after the revolution.
1: Yes. Well, so if we just take those two, uh, Lockhart and, and Mura, Um Lockhart was almost a great man, but he wasn't quite. And he knew he was smart enough, he was capable enough, and he knew all these great men. Um, but he just didn't quite flip the corner, turn the corner. Um, his plot had failed. And he never really scaled those heights again. He became, uh, first he was, um, he was a banker. He became a journalist. He was a very fine journalist. Um, during World War II, um, he was, I forget, I think he was in charge of Allied propaganda maybe in, in Europe. Um, a big job. But he, was, he never uh, was in a position again to change the world as he had been in 1918. Mora, on the other hand, is in the end, I think, a greater figure than Lockhart. Um, He leaves her, he goes back to England, which has just won the war. Um, But Mora is left in Petrograd actually, Uh, well, Moscow to begin with, and then she goes back to Petrograd, Um, and the country is falling apart. And the, I remember
0: this is the Russian civil war that wait, rages as the the British leave in the middle of the autumn of of 1918. A, a, prop, a proper, unfortunately, a proper civil war is about to break out and last for two and a half years in in Russia itself.
1: Yes, people are starving to death, and there's plague, and there's famine, and 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 the Bolsheviks hate people like Mura, who comes from a wealthy, in fact, and had married a titled family somehow she found her way into the home of Maxim Gorky, the greatest living Russian author of the time. And Gorky became her protector. And she became Gorky's lover and muse and translator and agent. Um, <clears throat> and 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 then Where
0: are her two children with Benkendorf? Where are her two children at this point? I, I it's either in the book or I missed it. Uh, she has to reconnect with her children because she gave them essentially up to her husband but her husband is executed during the civil war or yes. dies during the civil yes. war yes. does she reclaim her children no uh, i, tanya?
1: I uh, no i can t- i know a lot about about this um so what happened was um her husband had owned an estate in estonia called yendel and um the bolsheviks took it but tanya and her older brother, two years older, Paul, and their nanny went to Estonia and lived in what was called the dower house of that great estate in Estonia. And that's where Tanya and her brother grew up. And her mother would make an occasional appearance as uh, as this sort of uh, magnificent and, and exotic and mysterious figure. And she would always bring them presents and so on. And she'd stay for a week And then she would disappear
0: after their father was killed. Who was raising them, though? Their nanny.
1: And by the way, the nanny was Irish and she was I don't have this quite right. I don't have this in the book, but she was, I believe, the illegitimate daughter of Maud Gunn, the Irish revolutionary.
0: So, uh, again, did, I mention did I mention Messi? We're, we're, we've got even more Messi off of here. That's right. uh, again, for readers, uh, from 1918 to 1940, Estonia is independent. So it's if you're going to be the parentless children uh, hiding out from revolutionaries and war, Estonia is not that bad for 22 years. It won't last beyond 1940, but it, uh, now I understand how those two children would have survived by being in Estonia in that period.
1: It was an idyllic... Uh, childhood and Tanya wrote a book about it, and it's called "An Estonian Childhood." In fact,
0: and so, uh, uh, but eventually Mora does leave the Soviet Union. She's had too many brushes with uh, the authorities. Uh, even though she's, as you say, very colorful, she eventually does leave, and I assume she does uh, reclaim her children at some point.
1: No, she she, show, she her children are are nearly grown. She she moves to London in I'm going to say it's 1932, but you would have to actually check the book.
0: I think it's short. in the book. Yeah, that sounds yeah. about right. Yeah.
1: Okay, and Tanya and Paul join her in London, but by then you know they're 17 or 18 years old, um, and I suppose they lived with her for a while, but they were independent people, and Tanya got married and so on and so forth. I could spend a long time telling you stories that Tanya told me about going back to Russia um, uh, with her mother in 1936, for example. They are just- For astonished. a visit. Yes, for a visit. They stayed at uh, the home of Maxim Gorky. Gorky had just died. Um, I can, I'll, I'll tell this very quickly. Um, I don't want to go over your time length. But um, so she spent the summer there. And the head of the secret police, whose name was Yagoda, was in love with the wife Of Gorky's son, which was bad news for Gorky's son. And Gorky was dead. And soon so would be Gorky's son. And nobody's quite sure why. So he was there all the time. So were uh, every lead, so was, I guess I should say, uh, every leading uh, Russian Bolshevik. So Tanya met Bukharin. Tanya told me about sitting. Um, at the picnic table with Yagoda, head of the secret police, and saying with stars in her eyes, I want to return to the Soviet Union and take part in the glorious Soviet socialist experiment. And Yagoda looked at her unblinkingly and then said after maybe a 30 second pause, not yet. Not yet. Yeah.
0: <laughs> in modern parlance we would say that's not a very good idea young lady (laughs) that's
1: right and and let me say so i'm sitting there with tanya in london in knightsbridge uh, in her little house and i say to her tanya when did you realize that things were going wrong in the soviet union and she said well i was there in the summer of 1936 and by christmas everyone i'd known was dead
0: yes Bukharin does not make it out i believe i thought Bukharin was fairly early in 1930 that is in 1936 as opposed to 37 38 I could I need yeah. to check myself and and but you go I, to t- sounds about right
1: and you go to two. yes and oh I my. don't know who else yes yes
0: so so I mean- Tanya goes back Tanya and Mora go back to England in 19 later later 1936 and live out their lives Mora continues to go from from uh exciting moment to exciting moment
1: yes yes yeah she knew everybody um and she went to bed with a lot of people and they all were fascinated by her and um, wrote poems about her. I've seen the poetry. Um, and, she, and she, as I say, she always loved Lockhart. And, but she, she wound up taking care of H.G. Wells uh, until H.G. Wells died. Um, and then when Lockhart died, um, she was not invited to the funeral. But after the funeral, um, she arranged for a service to be held for him in the Greek Orthodox, I'm sorry, in the Russian Orthodox Church in Kensington. Um, And it's this, I've been there just to check it out, an enormous, enormous cathedral. And she was the only one there with the choir or whatever, nobody else.
0: Oh my, okay. And so one of the things about Mora in the book that you raise repeatedly and uh, you don't have a definitive answer for, and that is whether, at least early on, perhaps after the collapse of the uh, the plot and the uh, arrest of everyone, it becomes a little bit clearer that Mara probably is willing to cooperate with Yaakov Peters, if not in a very aggressive fashion, then at least in some fashion. But throughout the book, you you have whether Mara you raise the question, and it's largely difficult to answer, whether Mara at one point or another is cooperating with authorities prior to that point. And it's, it's just because she survives, she's got nine lives, and uh, she survives so many scrapes that it's, it's hard to figure out, it, was she playing many different sides against this, uh, one another, or was she just extraordinarily lucky?
1: Well, I, um, I, a couple of things about that. First... I did talk with Tanya about this, and I and Tanya said her mother liked people to think she was important, but she would never have been a spy. So that's what Tanya, I think, genuinely believed. Um, I am fairly certain that all the rumors about her are cruel and mistaken, except for one. That is, she she some people thought she spied for the Germans because she'd been in Germany before the war and she was in Russia. Some people thought she spied for Kerensky. Some people thought she spied for the Ukrainians. Um, I think um, that most likely the only one that is reasonably um, likely is that when the plot was busted and Lockhart was sent to jail and she was sent to jail, uh, that Yaakov Peters came to her and offered her a deal: you work for us, and we'll, uh, we won't, and we'll spare your lover. And Mora once said to H.G. Wells's son, um, something like, um, "Not to do what's necessary in those circumstances is to elect not to survive." And as you just said, she was a survivor. So I think that probably she made an agreement with them at that point. Um but there's more to the story because um I read I don't I did not do primary research in the period after the plot. But um the biographies of Mora say that um the Chika asked her to watch Maxim Gorky because he was a maverick and Mora fell under the spell of Gorky. She once said he was a universe all in himself, and she confessed to Gorky that the Chika wanted her to do this and Gorky went to Lenin, and Lenin told the Chika to leave Mora alone.
0: Very fascinating stories it's all brought together in a in a a great tale, very well written and just the fascinating the human side of something that's often taught in a very, I don't know, in not going to say inhuman or without the humanity, without the individual personalities. The book is The Lockhart Plot, Love, Betrayal, Assassination, and Counter-Revolution in Lenin's Russia by Jonathan Schneer. Jonathan, thank you so much for uh, being on the show, for writing this book. It's really a a fascinating read and uh, I I commend you for it.
1: Uh, Thank you very much for those kind words and it was my pleasure.